everybody welcome back to modern life pod i'm back again with morgan whom you may remember from our christmas series um we're talking about north and south the 2004 version a day or as morgan calls it everybody dies i didn't uh, well i mean yes everybody does die it's true literally everybody yeah, it, yep. <laughs> but before we get into that, um, so Morgan, what's on your mind? What you got? Um, so actually, what's been on my mind is kind of related to some of the things that came up for me in North and South. Um, I remember during my undergrad student uh, studies, there was this idea that was posited to me that a new language is formed after three generations. So imagine that um, two populations of people who had, did not speak a common language were stranded somewhere and isolated. The first generation of people wouldn't be able to communicate. There would really be no shared meaning between them. And what linguists find is that the second generation are begin to be able to communicate with a little bit more depth. Um, so they actually share meaning, but it's not a complete language. It's kind of a pygmy language. You know, they take commonalities between the two and, um, and it's not until the third generation in this kind of scenario that, that a new language forms and this group of people can actually communicate with each other and kind of how that relates to North and South, I guess we'll, we'll come back to that. But um, it's hmm. been this, it's been an interesting idea that that's floated around in my head for a while, because I mean, if you, if you substitute the idea of language for just an idea, you kind of begin to see how slow um, mm. cultural change happens, mm. you know? So like, um, let's say a new model of education, like the first generation of people who grew up with that model of education or the first generation people who come up with it, they really don't have a language to share it with the outside world. It's not until the third generation of people, like, you know, 90 years later, that that idea can truly be understood. So that's kind of what I've been thinking about. <laughs> I No, I... I really like that. Um, and I also think about that uh, a lot in terms of social justice issues. Um, oh, because yeah. you look you look at some people today, and let's take an example. They, they, for them, it's, of course, perfectly normal that women are allowed to vote. That is not something they question. Um, but they, for example, don't see trans identities as valid. And then I always think to myself, if you had been alive 100 years ago, you wouldn't be one of those people campaigning for women's votes. You you know, it wouldn't be yeah. normal to you. And I always right. and I think about that in terms of my own life and what are my you know, what are the shortcomings I have in my upbringing? What do I have to overcome and kind of, you know, spend more time thinking about instead of just rejecting it instantly? It's like yeah. we have this responsibility to not just take 
all the stuff that we have inherited and that people have done for us so that we have a better life, but also, you know, kind of pay that forward. Well, and it kind of makes you wonder, like, what will the new normal be, right? Like, what's that, like, what you were saying with, um, with trans identity, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, um, I'll, I'll eat my boot, that's going to be the new normal. Like that, that is going to be woven within our fabric as deeply as a woman's right to vote. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, hopefully, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's the hope. But it's, it, it is curious to kind of look forward at, and ask ourselves, what's the new normal? And then look backwards and ask ourselves, like, what wasn't normal? Right. Yeah, this actually ties in perfectly with my modern thought. So I just finished reading The Secret Garden. And I think it's one of those, at least when you're little, you watch the movies, you know, I think I watched like a black and white version. Uh Um, And I think a lot of times parents read this to their kids, but I, I had never read it before. And if you remember, there's the kid in the attic who refuses to go outside and he's just laying in bed and his limbs and muscles aren't developed so everybody thinks um he has a disability and in actuality he just needs fresh air and physical therapy to kind of develop you know his muscles again blah 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 so he goes from being in the wheelchair to running around um and there are actually a lot of tropes which this book is not guilty of because they make it very clear that he never had a disability. Um, But there are a lot of books that treat, you know, oh, you can change your disability by your good thoughts. Like I think Heidi does this too, where suddenly somebody doesn't need their wheelchair anymore. It's just so curious how we thought of disability back then. And even though this book does not do that, it's still... um, clearly classifies disability as something not wanted and as something unacceptable because the boy's estranged father who lives in the same house but never comes to visit him he thinks oh maybe if my dad sees me running around he'll love me again and we'll be like friends again and that is exactly that's the happy ending at the end of the book that's exactly what happens like oh you're physically able now i can love you like you now i can yeah yeah so, and I can point to so many books that I've read, like just these classics that, I mean, the, what the disability act wasn't even, we didn't even have that until 1990. So this movement of seeing disabled people as actual people is so recent, you know, and there's, there's so much in my voc- daily vocabulary that I'm fine, you know, that I have to change. Yeah. And it's, I think for me that, that kind of brings up the the question of, of value in a human's life, right? Yeah. Like before, and and to a large extent, um, to this day, you know, we we did not and or do not value the lives of people with disabilities because our own personal value is so vested in our ability to do things like run and jump and and lift large. Like heavy yeah, things, because you're you know? not seen as a contributing member of society, you know, in some ways. Yeah, it's with our value is so vested in what we can contribute um, that those who contribute in ways that we aren't trained to recognize are mm-hmm. completely devalued 
I think, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, but that's all I had. So I think we can dive into the main topic. Okay. I really wanted to, I wanted to do this with Morgan because he has read the book. We have both read the book came out in 1855 by Elizabeth Gaskell and it's considered a social novel. Um, it came out periodically in one of Dickens's, um, I think it was called household something I had it written down and now household words. Um, and as I'm reading it, it, I think it's very obvious that this wasn't scripted as one, as one novel because things change as you go along. Like yeah. suddenly Mr. Bell goes from being a total side character to, oh, to like, Oh, he's your godfather. And I'm like, Oh, suddenly he's her godfather. <laughs> Yeah, this is definitely one of those novels that um, even though it's been collected since, you can kind of really still see its serial nature and kind of where it was originally broken up and um, how perhaps some plot points didn't really sit as well with the audience as, as Gaskell wanted. So she kind of veered off left. Um, yeah. And she actually hated writing like this because she wasn't used to having each chapter be like a cliffhanger so people would buy the next issue um she had a lot of trouble with this and also by the end of the book like the book just doesn't end and even <laughs> and even dickens was like you gotta you gotta finish this like nothing is happening girl like get it together and i'm as much as i don't like charles dickens i'm right there with him because at the end we just get lost in like parties in london that don't mean anything and i'm like where where are we <laughs> yeah but you know you could also you could also say that that could be a foil for margaret getting lost in parties in london that didn't mean anything it's just because the ending is so abrupt that i'm like oh oh now it's over like we spent so much time with the build-up and then there's no epilogue or this is, you know, he. it's just all strange. <laughs> but that's in the book. The show is a lot different. So uh, Milton Northern is based on Manchester. Um, and it kind of discusses the just industrial changes that were happening during the time that I can't even imagine. Especially when you're still trying to figure out what labor laws... You, you know, you don't even have the legislature available to protect these people working with all this machinery and stuff. And I think this version does that really well because the yeah. version with Patrick Stewart from 1975, they didn't have the budget to show the inside of the mill. Uh -huh. And just that moment, you know, where she walks in and it's all the cotton is flying towards her. I think that's one of the most memorable moments in the in the show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. That opening introduction that we get <laughs> with Richard Armitage's character is, is really unsettling to me because he's not a violent... In the show, they say, like, oh, I have a bad temper. And what's dangerous about that to me is it follows this trope of somebody being physically abusive and then, oh, now they fell in love, now they found their woman, they're going to stop that behavior. You know, because we, which is not the character in the book and it's not supposed to be like that, but I just, yeah. it reminds me of that. That's why I'm like, oh, you know, be careful with that. Like, <laughs> well, and it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, like we need, we need a visceral enough 
reason for Margaret to be put off right off the bat, right? But on the other hand, you know, if you look at that opening scene in context of the rest of the show, when is he ever like that again, right? It's just in that beginning scene to try and set the tone of like, here are two very polar opposite people. Um, Now let's watch how they interact. Because it's not a consistent character yeah. thing is that what you were saying yeah that's exactly what i was saying yeah got it. it okay it was kind of just a, a nod toward that trope and also just a very stark way to to start this um to start this show for this one i mean i've i've seen it a couple of times and so a lot of my nitty-gritty things i've i've kind of made peace with um, so for me, there's there's some more kind of overarching ideas that's been that um, really came out for me this time around, like that idea of um, loss of communication. You know, the the conflict of this show on on a number of levels between Margaret and Mr. Bell, between Margaret and her um, oh gosh, what was his name? Uh, the um, workers. Higgins? 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 Nicholas Higgins? Yeah, Margaret and the Higgins family. All of the kind of consternation that happens there is about um, uh, misunderstood signals and this kind of lack of shared um, language or lack of shared meaning. So so there's this, there's this glorious scene. Um, I think it was... Um, when Margaret and Higgins run into each other for the first time on the on the bluff, kind of in the in the cemetery, and Margaret asks if she could bring a basket around. Oh, it's the, yeah, that's actually the second time. But yeah, 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 I know it. Yeah, go ahead. And yeah, so Margaret says, "Can I bring a basket around?" And Higgins scoffs and goes like, "Well, I don't know what we would put in it." And to Margaret, bringing a basket around means you know, can I, can I bring a care package basically? Like, let me show my appreciation for you with food and, and physical things. And to Higgins, it literally means, do you want a basket? <laughs> right. And it's right. Like, and it's, then, and then he's also like, why are you inviting yourself over to my house? <laughs> you yeah. <know? laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's a very interesting social commentary for me um, about, our need within within a society, especially within a society that's struggling with a new normal like manufacturing, um, you know, we need that that shared uh, meaning, that communication, or else there are so many little breakdowns that just cause chaos. You know, and you see that mm. between Mr. Bell and Higgins as well, like over and over and over again, they they don't understand each other, and it's because of where they're coming from. And there's you mean Thornton, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, Thornton, not Mister Bell. I apologize. Yeah, between Thornton and and Mister Higgins, there's just that gulf between them that they, I mean, that's where the struggle comes from. Yeah, because it's the geo, it's geographic, and then also it's a class thing. You know, the masters and the yeah. And and then the yeah you're right the show is also about well where does Margaret fall between those because she's always caught in the middle kind of 
Yeah, and and she has her own issues between like not the the north and south having um different social codes and like the north and the south and London having different different social codes. You know, that first wedding proposal with Henry, that's what that is. I mean, she she um unbeknownst to her like pretty much announced to him that she wanted to marry him which was not her intention at all. So that's that's kind of been what's what's bumbling around for me is this is a very interesting commentary on how we need a shared language and a shared sense of meaning. There's a in the Patrick Stewart version, which is free on YouTube, I recommend everyone see it. Um, their first meeting is in the house, I believe, that she that later becomes her house and she's looking at the real uh-huh. estate. Um, and he's kind of there already getting things settled. And she goes, how did you know I was going to be here? And he's like, oh yeah, I just like talked to the landlord, got things figured out. And to her, it's a total impertinence and breach of privacy. And to him, it's like, I'm getting stuff done. I'm helping you guys. Um, and that's interesting that you bring that up because I hadn't thought about that scene and it's, it's an even better establishment of them clashing and not communicating than the stupid, violent, <laughs> you know, don't start a fire in my mail scene. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, just to go back to the different social cues, I think the the handshake, you know, where she doesn't understand that. Yeah. And reading, having read a lot of Jane Austen and stuff that takes place in the South, you know, people don't touch that often. Like, I'm with Margaret on this. I wasn't used to, like, you know, men and women shaking hands like that either. And there's actually, in the book, there's another scene where they get into it over some workers' rights issues when he's over at her dad's. And again she doesn't shake his hand because she just doesn't even get it. Just It doesn't register. Uh-huh. And then during the proposal, which I actually really love the proposal in the book, she's trying to make peace with him and she goes, oh, de- don't let's go on making each other angry. And she reaches out to him to shake hands and he's the <laughs> one walking out of the room. You know, it's... And in the, yeah. in the show, they do that really well too where um, she's at the party and she goes, oh, I finally mastered Milton Ways. And they have that handshake. And it's a really great, all the hand shots in this are really great. Like when she's handing him the cup and their fingers touch for uh-huh. a second. You know, I, I love that oh. stuff. I think it adds a lot of like energy. Because I think period drama can be a little stuffy sometimes. And you kind of need that intimacy between the yeah. characters. Well, and it's interesting to to remember that any sort of physical contact that contact like that between a man and woman, I mean, was did lend this sense of intimacy, right? I mean, between you, me, and you, handshake is a handshake, and I think for for Mr. Milton, a handshake is is kind of a gesture among equals, not not necessarily yeah. something intimate so when he extends his hand for a handshake he's actually saying like i consider you my equal which um for that day and age as far as like what was going on socially between the genders like that's huge right but but 
But you're right. I mean, Margaret completely misreads that, and rightly so. But it, it, it is interesting to see both in the book and the show their play. And you can almost see um, kind of Margaret's burgeoning understanding of, of the North and of this kind of new language that she's, that she's trying to learn in how she reacts with the handshake. And then also how she can't go back. Yeah, and I think that's true of all yeah. of us once we've learned something. You know, she can't go back to just London life and doing nothing all day when she knows there are people suffering in different ways. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I actually thought that was rather effective when um, Margaret and Mr. Bell go back to the South, closer to the end of the book and or show, and it's not the same to her. You know, she, mm-hmm. she views it through her experiences in Milton. It, it is interesting. You, you can't go back. You know, you can't undo the new normal. <laughs> it's here to stay. Um, so the scene, the first scene where Margaret meets Nicholas, that scene on the steps where all the workers are coming out of the mill and she's oh. she's like physically <laughs> yeah. assaulted by them and one of them steals her purse. To me, that scene is overkill and it's such it's such a cute scene in the book, and I I don't know if they for the show just needed something dramatic to make the viewer understand how different life is, but the only people actually touching her in the book are the women, and it's yeah. always just like oh where'd you get that that's cute girl like you know they're being so open and forward in a way that she's not used to it, but after a time she's just like. Yeah, they're just being friendly. You know, it wasn't like this mob of people like trampling her to death. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. I mean, because it, it really depends on in the show, like what what sense you're trying to give, right? And if they were just trying to give the sense of her being lost and kind of overwhelmed, all they needed was the crowd kind of bustling around yeah. her, right? They didn't even have yeah. to interact, but... The fact that, that, yeah, they were basically, like, picking her apart and almost trampling her was um, not not necessary. Totally agree. Um, so another character that I just love to pieces, and she's, in all the ver- versions I've watched, she's so funny. It's Fanny, the, like, <laughs> mean <laughs> sister. <laughs> she, she's just so funny. She's hilarious. Um, uh. Just wanted to find this part in the book yeah so it starts off (laughs) the first thing we know about fanny is this someone was practicing up uh like a piece of music playing it very rapidly every third note being either indistinct or wholly missed out and the loud chords at the end being half of them false but not the less satisfactory to the performer (laughs) it's so (laughs) fanny i love that and just how she's like doesn't understand that people are have less money than her. Like when she asked Margaret, like, why don't you have a piano? Why is your house so small? Like, yeah, I just, you can't take her seriously. I, she's just so funny to me. Huh. Fanny is interesting. Cause she's definitely a social commentary by Gascal about like, I almost want to say like, it's either, it's either quote unquote like new money coming out of mm, um, yeah that doesn't really understand 
the social scene but still wants to feel like they're involved or if it's a commentary on the social scene of London just being so um, paper thin you know without any depth and I'm not I even having read the book like I'm not a hundred percent which um, which way Gaskell is trying to go but yeah, there's there's definitely a social group that Gaskell does not approve of, um, and they are represented with Fanny. And also, I think there's a contrast between the two siblings and the relationship with their mother, because I think when most of this really bad stuff was happening, it was always the son and the mother and the daughter was away at school, right? Uh-huh. And even at the end, when she's married, the mom goes, it's, it's just you and me again. Yeah, And I actually think the bond between those two is the best relationship in the show. The woman who plays the mom and just every scene that those two people are together is just, uh, it just like makes my heart swell because it's, there's so much going on oh, yeah. between the mom and the son. Just magnificent. Now, what, um, remind me what Margaret's family's servant was called Dixon Dixon right I think one of the relationships that was far undeveloped underdeveloped in the um, show was the relationship between Dixon and Margaret's mother because in the book there is definitely I mean that is deep and it makes um, spoiler alert I guess Margaret's mother's death so much deeper um, knowing that it's not just her biological like family, but it's Dixon as well, and the and the extent to which that relationship goes, um, I thought was a was a missed opportunity um, in the show. Do you feel like there's from Dixon's side more than worship there? I almost felt like this had some like homosexual undertones, but I might just be reading into that. Or it might just be that actress's performance and the way she, you know, looked at her mistress and talks about her. But yeah, um, I don't know. I could see where you were coming from looking it, at it from the show side. I didn't. But not from the book side, right? I didn't catch yeah. any of that from the book side. Yeah. No. I, yeah. Side. That makes sense. Oh, there's a really great line and it's in both the show and the book. And this is, it's something that's inspired me personally and the way I deal with my finances. But it's when uh, John Thornton says, I taught, I taught myself denial, or I taught me self denial being so poor. And I, I think of that a lot, like I'm trying to save right now for a big life change. And I don't know, just getting my life in order. Uh-huh. And that quote is like a weird motivational thing to me. I taught myself denial. The way that he has to deal with his finances and they're, you know, now they're rich, but there was a time when his dad died when they really had to scrape every penny together. Yeah. And it's just something I think of when I buy, when I want to buy something stupid, which I don't even have that urge anymore to want to buy things, (laughs) you know, but it's always like, oh no, I don't really... You almost there's a difference between self care and self indulgence, uh-huh. you know, and you sometimes have to like rein yourself in. 
that's how I feel about that quote. I don't know. I just, I just really like it. Yeah. No, it's, it's a good one. I agree. Um, it reminds me actually of um, things that I used to do in my childhood. Yeah. So, well, okay. So I was a weird kid growing up. There's, there was a time when I would eat salad without any salad dressing on purpose. There, I mean, there were multiple choices of salad dressing for me, but I would eat it plain. And my reasoning behind it was if I eat it plain now and I'm okay with it, then if there ever comes a day when I don't have salad dressing, then it won't be so bad. That's so weird. Does that make huh. sense? Like I, I, it, it was this, it was this idea and this feeling that cropped up for me as a child, which was like, I'm okay now, but if I didn't, deny myself now then if I'm ever not okay in the future I will still be okay and I think that's kind of tied to this idea of teaching yourself denial you know resetting your your barometer to to a to a different setting so you yeah be okay um I had, this is an interesting story I did not know about you <laughs> I, well that, that that was before you met me <laughs> the one okay so one of the plot holes that i that has always bugged me in the book and in the show and this this is actually about franny i cannot picture franny poor oh yeah like how did she turn out so i guess she was very young though too i think they say that over and over well yeah but still like the experience is there and yeah Especially when she has those comments to Margaret, like, oh, why is your house so small? Or why don't you have a piano? It's like, wait a second, but you lived in a poor house for the beginning of your life, right? But, I, but she was so young, I don't know if she would remember it. Okay. And then I I'm think they saying. said this. <laughs> no, it's she's she's definitely a caricature and there could have been more depth to that character. And I think you're right that Gaskell made the choice not to embed her with, the, yeah. you know, any of that. Which I think would have been, I mean, personally, I think that would have been really interesting because it, it would have yeah. colored her comments, not necessarily like, Oh, I don't understand that you're poor, but more of a, I reject the fact that you're poor. Oh, because I don't want to go back there. Yeah. Oh, Morgan, you got to write that fanfic now. <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah. I'm going to write a fanfic that that's based off of Franny's experience. This, this show actually has so many excellent quotes that weren't in the book. And I cannot think of any other movie version of a book where there's, you know, better dialogue and writing in the, it's not better, but like I have a whole list here, like the proposal scene where he's like, one minute we talk of the color of fruit, the next of love. How does that happen? That's <laughs> such a great line. Yeah. Also, the when he's looking at the carriage driving off and he's like, look back at me. That I mean, there's a oh, million pictures yeah. of that online. That's a classic line. And that wasn't in the book. Um also, the end of the first episode, I believe, when she writes to her cousin and she's like, I've seen hell and it's white, snow white. And then the last line I had is when when he grabs her at the train station, he says, you, you don't need Henry to explain. Like, ah, 
These are all great lines. <laughs> Love it. Excellent writing. Excellent script writing. Yeah. A plus. The script for this one. I mean, yeah, it was great. The one scene I do prefer from the book and the Patrick Stewart version is the proposal scene because I don't necessarily like how it escalates into her trying to change the topic by talking about her friend dying and him being like, oh, and that's my fault too. And then this weird fit of jealousy that he has where he's like, oh, have you rejected a million other people before me? Uh And I, I rather like that scene in the book where he's like uh, you look as if you know it tainted you to be loved by me but you cannot avoid it and then they can't come to an understanding and he walks out while she's trying to be friends with him because he's her father's only friend that I don't know I find that more it is very nice and dramatic in the show though and the music's going and it's the end of the episode <laughs> like the first time i watched it i was i was there 100 percent. i was like yeah. oh no <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean the scene in the show is so satisfying <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> a great movie making <laughs> great yeah, drama not necessarily good book writing but great movie making yeah. Um, how do you feel about the Great Exhibition scene where she goes to the Great Exhibition in Crystal Palace, Hyde Park? I feel like this is one of those. So the Great Exhibition was in 1851. Uh-huh. I feel like this is kind of like the Titanic. Like if any period drama was made around the time the Titanic was around, there's always like some relative who was like on the Titanic. Yeah. And I feel like this <laughs> this great exhibition was one of those things that's like, oh, let's throw it in there. But I actually really like that scene. Um, it also adds a contrast from two, because there's such a color difference between North and South. Uh-huh. The really bright like orange as opposed to kind of like the grays and the blues and the greens it's kind of nice to come back to that like oh we're back in london it's you know fun color time and then she runs into richard armitage and they you know they kind of have that nice little talk there yeah and it's i think it works is it i think that scene is actually our first time seeing him out of his element as well oh yeah that's true only existed in the narrative in Milton, right? So to see Mr. Thornton in London for the first time, or for our first time, um, especially in the show where they could play with that color scheme, um, was pretty effective. Um, mm-hmm. But I do, I mean, I do agree that the Great Expe- Expedition, Exhibition, the Great Exhibition, exhibition sorry. Um, yeah. Is one of those tropes that are just like, well, you know, we're around that year, so here's this thing that happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. And Henry. Oh, can we talk about Henry for a little bit? Do you like Henry? Because I feel like I've. No. Henry's my guy. No, I, you don't like Henry. I don't like Henry, and I'm so sad for Henry. <laughs> entire show just like dude just get over her just no 
No. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, but then she, like, calls him up, like, hey, can you help out? My renegade brother escaped from the law. And he's like, oh, is she reaching out to me because she loves me? Like, I can can see it. Every (laughs) single time that she calls him up and, like, asks him for an honest favor, he's like, oh, maybe this means that she loves me. No, Henry, this just means that she wants something from you. <laughs> well, I, you are her lawyer. You are getting paid. So I know, but I think do your job, Henry. <laughs> yeah, do your job and don't, you know. She already turned you down once. Like how many times does she have to turn you down before you get in? But yeah, I don't know. I just I'm just sad for him. That's all. Can we, because this is a thing you brought up Uh when I talked to you years ago and we discovered we both had watched this show, (laughs) that you really dislike Margaret's father because he's just like a blob and doesn't do anything and (laughs) please go into that. Okay, so Margaret's father doesn't change. You know, we have, we have, I think most other characters, Franny not included, um, go through some sort of character development, right? And the book picks up with Margaret's father already having gone through this quote unquote, like, um, um, issue of conscience, which brought them to the North, but him living in the North and, and trying to like teach people who don't want to be taught. And really, I mean, he has more interaction with the people of the North than Margaret does. If you think about it, Mm -hmm. the public sphere, he's out there every day. Um, He doesn't change. He doesn't change what he thinks. He doesn't change how he interacts with the world. He just stays flatlined. And I don't like it. And I don't like him as a character. I mean, if you if you are a man of the cloth and really a man of conscience, um, and you are surrounded by so much strife, I personally think that, I mean, you would roll up your shirt sleeves and get in there, right? But Margaret's father just kind of dances above it all in this weird sort of haze of like, oh, I'm... I'm I'm too fragile a lily to do anything. Um, yeah, and the fact that he also doesn't catch on to his wife really declining in health. Yeah, I mean she basically you know? dies before he before he notices. Like, really, guy? Come on, come on. I don't know. And also, um, in the book when he's like, "Hey, uh, we gotta move." I think he makes Margaret tell the mom, right? Uh-huh. He's like, hey, we're, we're moving in like two weeks and we are not ready because I can't talk to my wife and you need to go do it for me. Yeah. And then also that scene with, I think this is the scene that's most upsetting to me is when Margaret has to tell Boucher's wife, a woman she's never met, like there's like a corpse in oh, front of her. She's never yeah. probably, and she's like, uh, Nicholas, like, you know her, you have to go talk to her. And he's like, I can't do it. And then he's like, she's like, well, uh, my dad should be used to this since he was a religious person, a religious leader in our parish. And he's like, uh, yeah, no, I'm good. 
It's like, really? What? Poor Margaret. Now she has to like go talk to her. Like it's like the little red hen of telling people that their relatives have died. Like, will you do it? Nope. Will you do it? Nope. Well, then I guess I'll do it myself. Oh, another great scene when somebody has died. Um, so many people die. <laughs> this is very close to the book where Mr. Bell gets off of the carriage and sees her through the window. Uh-huh. And in the book, there's a lot of dialogue of her running down and being like, I know something's wrong because you're by yourself. Where's my dad? I know something's wrong. Yeah. And I actually think for the show, they did a really smart thing of having it just be silent and her not speaking and him just taking his hat off, looking at her would just like, that's all we need to know. Like yeah. we as the audience know what has happened. Yeah. I mean, between Mr. Bell carrying her father's suitcase and him taking off his hat. Yeah, we know. Yeah. We know. Oh, another excellent scene that's one of my favorites in the book is when everybody's kind of over at the at the Hales. Uh-huh. Um, I think they're like having tea or something. Mr. Bell's there. And this is right after the train scene where Thornton thinks he's seen her with another man. Mr. Bell's praising Margaret and um, what a great upstanding character she has. And Thornton's uh-huh. like, oh, really? Is she really known to be that truthful? And Margaret's the only one who knows what he's talking about. And she's just like looking down at her sewing and won't look up. And Thornton's like, oh, my God, why am I being such a dick? What's wrong with me? And he's like, he's hoping that she'll look up so that he can make like sad puppy eyes at her and be like, I'm sorry, without him having to say something because they can't bring it up in front of everyone. Yeah. But she never looks up. It's oh, it's such a great scene. <laughs> it never gives him the satisfaction. She's like, he hates me and I get it. <laughs> he's <it's> great. <laughs> misunderstandings when they're done right i'm I'm cool with them yeah yeah i mean it's it's in some way a mistaken identity of like oh we as the audience know that they did this thing but they actually meant to do this thing but these two characters don't know and that's so satisfying <laughs> if it's done correctly okay so i think we both agreed the first time we talked about this show eons and eons ago I think I remember us both agreeing that our least favorite part. Oh, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's so unnecessary. Are we talking about the kissing scene? We're talking about the kissing scene. We're doing it. <laughs> or or the scene where they basically have sex in public because it's yeah. almost the same thing. Oh, so unnecessary. <laughs> like, why? We did such a good job of subtlety for this entire show and of, like, showing their kind of sweet, bumbling aspects of each other. And then, and then we have to give in to our modern, like, well... It's not love unless they're just fucking macking. <laughs> no. Stop. Uh, yeah, when I was rewatching it, I was like preparing myself and it was just as bad. Just as bad. Um, so in the book, he comes and visits her to hash out some 
you know, property things since she's the landlord now. Yeah. And they have this very private moment in the parlor and uh-huh. the scene ends pretty abruptly. And it doesn't even say they kiss, but it says like they had a quiet... It's implied that they kiss, but it's, you know, it's Victorian novel. It's not going to go into detail. And also it's in the parlor. Yeah, it's in a private room. Yeah. I really, I actually love that scene, but it still, it makes, it makes no sense in the show. Because there's something I noticed this time around. Um, Have you ever seen the Pride and Prejudice version with Keira Knightley? Uh, no. Really? How have you managed to do that? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> such a classic. You may be familiar. There's a scene at the end that wasn't in the book where he's like stepping out of the fog. It's really early morning. Neither of them were able to sleep. And he's just wearing um, a shirt and then a coat over that. Uh-huh. And I watched the commentary and basically like to them, they know this is a fantasy. Like he's, basically naked considering all the layers and things they had to wear at the time yeah and knowing knowing that the scene at the train station was very reminiscent of that to me because again he he's not wearing a necktie he's not wearing a vest or an overcoat he steps out of that train like half naked basically but it works like the music's going and they're looking at each other and he's like holding her back and i'm like well like gasping (laughs) And then and then when they sit down and she, you know, she dares to kind of kiss his hand. That to me was already just like outrageous. I was like, oh, my God, that's crazy. Like, Like, yeah, that works so well. And then they have this slow kiss. And I'm like, (laughs) because it's a close up, I'm not seeing all the people on the platform who are like calling the police on you because (laughs) it's like a public display of indecency. And then they got slapped with a. 600 pound fine for public (laughs) speaking of um henry poor henry he can see like add if you if you model that in your head they are close enough to henry's train car where you can see them just macking on each other basically having sex in 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 a in this public space i'm like oh margaret what are you doing why? And he's look he's looking at them like really sadly when yeah. his real life face would have just been probably shock like oh my god what a bunch of sluts like what, <laughs> what is happening like I don't know her I'm not with her like girl take your suitcase like <laughs> <laughs> yeah this makes no sense he's handing her her suitcase and he, she's like I'm going in this other train now which is such a modern thing to do. Like, no, as a woman, you can't just go with some random man who is not your husband or any guardian and just go on it. Like, you have been just ruined for the rest of forever. Yeah. <laughs> What's happening? Where are you staying? Are you staying in a hotel by yourself? You can't stay at his house? Like, what is happening? <laughs> she'll, stay, she'll stay at the Higgins' place. God. Yeah, really. Where are you staying? Uh, that that whole scene, though, it's just it's just pandering. I mean, it's it's so blatantly just like, well, this is what we this is the new normal. You know, this is what we expect. So here you go. And I find this a lot with um, novels too that are period pieces that are uh, in the romance genre, where nothing 
the way people are acting in it is very modern and it doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm like, okay, so you wrote a historical, but not for people who are actually into historicals. So yes. who who's your audience here? Like, <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, that scene is great. Just a, until the hand kiss. And then we're going to do a Morgan Tabby edit. And that's, you know, it'll yeah. end there. And <laughs> and it'll just, it'll just be like, Oh, whoops, technical difficulties. We will return to your <laughs> regularly scheduled programming in now. And she has gotten herself a hotel room or something. I don't know. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, there's this, another excellent scene. Uh -huh. I know I keep saying that, um, but that was not in the book. But I think that we really need it. It's the scene, because they miss each other on the opposite trains, Margaret is at the abandoned mill by herself. Uh-huh. You know, and then, the, and then the mom comes in and is like, oh, are you happy? Are you happy now? Yeah. And they kind of have that sweet moment of Margaret reaching out to her and is like, you were right that I didn't get your son, but right now you're not getting me because uh -huh. this is upsetting to me as well. And she like tries to reach out to her and touch her. And the mom is just has so many walls up that she's built her entire life. And it's a great scene. Like, because there's so many questions I have of like, how will this family live together? Because they hate her so much. Like she's moving into a place where she basically only her husband likes her, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, I think thinking about that family dynamic past what the show um, illustrates for us, like Franny is probably not necessarily in the picture very much. And we've already seen within the confines of the show, um, Mr. Thornton's mother is willing to warm up to Margaret as long as she sees value in it for her son, right? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's true. She's like, I'll, I'll love her if you tell me to love her, I guess I will. And she's genuine about it. Like, when she thought that um, when her son was going to propose, um, before she found out that Margaret actually rejected him, like, she was genuine about, like, okay, I'm going to make an effort to... Um, so I think, I mean, it, it, they set us up for a rather functional, if not, um, misunderstood family dynamic, mm. but I do really appreciate the, the scene between the two of them, um, because we only get a couple of scenes just between, um, Mrs. Thornton and, and Margaret kind of throughout the entire, um, story. Yeah, I think the the last scene we get is where she says goodbye and she actually wins Mrs. Thornton over li a little bit where she's like, oh, I'm sorry about the way I spoke to you last time, but you have to believe me. I'm being honest. And then yeah. she kind of wins her over just by being so sweet. Yeah. And that's kind of all we get. Huh. And so the Higgins... Thornton relationship. Uh -huh. um, that's another one where I love all the scenes that they added in there, you know, with the kids and them discussing their plans to build this kitchen. And uh -huh. instead of having Mr. Bell tell Thornton about the brother, they have Higgins do it in both versions, I think, which I think, I don't know, is brilliant kind of adds to that 
friendship that the two of them form. Yeah, I mean, and I'm I'm kind of torn because like on the one hand they are really good scenes um and they do flesh out Higgins character a lot. But on the other hand, kind of from a historical fiction perspective, would that would that closeness between um a a kind of worker and a master actually come about you know they can respect each other in their in their respective societal kind of bubbles but would they have ever crossed over to the extent that we saw them in the show i'm i'm not sure yeah i think you're right about that because it's um it's again it's not like in the south you have those very clear distinction whereas you know the farmers in the south all work with their workmen and then they have the communal dinner at night and there you know there are distinctions between the landowner and it's you know his employees yeah but it's more of like a together if i'm thinking back to like far from the matting crowd for example it, it's more of a communal effort to get the harvest in and so forth uh and, and yeah even the the clothes they wear is completely different. You know, the uh-huh. amount they work, the people they associate with. I, yeah, you might be right that this is a fantasy, but I'm going to eat it all up, leak in the plate. Oh, it's a good, <laughs> it's a good fantasy. It's good. It smells good. It's a good fantasy. Oh, another thing that they do a lot in this that kind of pulls me out of it is that Margaret sometimes does not wear a hat. And I'm like, you're basically, again, naked. <laughs> like <laughs> that scene where she's saying goodbye um, to all of them going back to London. Uh-huh. And the aunt, the aunt is like, I got to get her back as soon as possible. And the mom's like, mm-hmm, damn right, as soon as possible, which is another really great line. Um, <laughs> but she's not wearing a hat in that scene. But then when she steps into the carriage, she has the hat and the veil on. Yeah. And I'm like, w- why would you? You would not take your hat off visiting. Mm-hmm. And not, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Interesting. I actually, I didn't, I didn't know the hat etiquette of the day. Yeah, um, but that's not to say that the costumes aren't magnificent. Oh my gosh. And again, really, really focus in on where are we right now? What story are we telling? What emotions are we trying to convey? Uh, You know, and it never disorients you. Cinematography-wise, too, you always know where you are. I think the only set that they have to reuse is that train station because they use it for the train set in Milton and then the one at the stop in between. And they use that train set on every... If you watch period drama, I don't know where this train thing is, but I've (laughs) seen it. I tried to Google it, but no... Nobody cares. Um, and they use different nighttime lighting so that you don't, yeah. so that it doesn't look like a repetitive set. You don't see the green and all that. Huh. And um, which is, you know, you got to work with what you have. And yeah. they did a great job with that. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree. The, um, the use of costume was really effective. Oh, in the, in the fabrics too, not even just the colors, but how light and airy. And there's even a quote about it. What does, what does the cousin say? She's like, Oh, we, we are never going to wear cotton. We're always going to wear linen. Uh huh. And a lot of their fabrics are more diaphanous airy. And then there's a really stark heaviness of the Milton clothes or even shabbiness with the, with the workers there. Uh-huh. 
Well, and that said, there are, there are a couple dresses um, for Margaret that were that had definitely that kind of heavier Milton quality to them. They're really kind of showing a shift in consciousness through, um, mm-hmm. which is great. <laughs> which is probably why you know, Thornton shows up half naked in the in the to be edited. <laughs> like, oh, massive shift in consciousness. Don't put any clothes on him. Yeah, I like that. Uh, that line he has too, where he's like, ah, "I found it in the hedgerow," and his voice is like quivering, and I'm like, "Ah, oh, I'm just swooning." I'm like, it's just, it's just pulling me in. I'm like, "No, don't suck me in this spiral of love. It doesn't make sense." Uh, yeah, they're just, they're just great actors. They're great. <laughs> that, yeah. That show was so well casted. I I distinctly remembering um, the first time I watched it. I think it was either you or somebody else didn't tell me that there were only what three episodes, four episodes, four episodes. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's four. I didn't know that there were only four until the end of the last episode. I was like, wait, what? No, I finished it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that was I mean that was before I had read the read the book so I didn't see it coming but yeah and the book is the opposite where it just will not end yep (laughs) I listened to the audiobook which was 18 hours long 18 Um, hours oh yeah but the person the person who did it was um really really great with the accents and doing the different I have a question about that because I'm not that well versed uh-huh. in English accents. And I recently found out that Patrick Stewart's very Shakespearean accent is not the normal way he speaks. He speaks like a northern dialect. Huh. I listened to an interview where he speaks in that dialect and I was like, what? Like he, he changed the whole way he talked for you know getting into acting yeah and his northern accent is very different from richard armitage's and i'm like what's which one is real they're probably both real but what is the if any listener out there knows hit us up write us an email um because it's just it's just interesting to listen to and notice also the different um what you talked about with the language too in the 74 version Higgins, um, they'll use a lot of different pronouns and just different ways of communicating. And maybe they just streamlined it a little bit more for this modern version so that people could understand it better. Yeah. Um, But I don't know. Huh. Yeah, I don't know either. So something they did away with in the Patrick Stewart version is the whole inquest storyline. And I actually prefer it because it drags out in the book too. And there's a, because this is a Christian novel, there's a very clear and moral message of Margaret saying over and over, I shouldn't have lied to the police. Even if my brother would have been caught, it was wrong to do. And every character she's telling this to is like, uh, no, I think you did the right thing. Like, I think it's good. Like this guy, this guy wasn't murdered by either of you. He just died because he's drinking all the time. Like, yeah, he fell off the platform, but like, but it's not your, you're good. Yeah. You're fine. Yeah. 
And I kind of, and I think Gaskell kind of drives that home a little too heavily of like, don't do the wrong thing. This is a social novel, but you know, <laughs> so. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think in, in all of its forms, the inquest is not necessary, which is interesting because like so much of the other things Gaskell has to say aren't necessarily geared towards the morality of life. It's more you know, class issues, which indirectly deal with morals, but not necessarily how she was framing it. So it was this weird sort of like, oh, and by the way, I guess I'll have a PSA in here as well. You know, be good, kids. Don't say no to the cops or whatever. But yeah. I Yeah, I that's really how it feels. Um, I think it is an interesting look at the history of police enforcement though because these Thornton being a local magistrate these people were chosen by their community from the community because of their position and their good judgment these people have zero legal background (laughs) yet you know Thornton's now in a position to be like uh yeah just drop that evidence just put in the trash chute we're good on that yeah which in the past, those were, that was all of nobility. They made the laws, they enforced them. They could do whatever the hell they wanted. Um, I kind of did some research on this. It wasn't until 1829 that um, the first police force was formed by Robert Peel in England. And then in 1842, they had their first um, detective force. And people were actually very much against the establishing of central police forces because they thought it would be used to um, control them and oppress them. Because before that, it was just like somebody rang a bell and the whole town came out to like catch the thief or the murder or what, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever. So it's, it's, it's an interesting look at that, but still it's a little, yeah, I think it makes it again. It's not my favorite. You know, if, if Gascal had spent more time on, on kind of highlighting the position of a magistrate, yeah. But most of the the time and space sent in that storyline is like, oh no, I shouldn't have lied to the cops. It's almost like another theme that she doesn't need to explore because there's already so much else going on. Yeah. You know, Thornton's already doesn't really trust um, Margaret, so we really don't need this like flagrant lie. Um, to drive that home between them. Because there's also um, already the questioning of um, authority in the whole storyline with the brother and uh-huh. what went down with the captain there and how nobody was in a position to really do anything about it and all these people are on the run and the ones they've already caught are have been murdered. So Yeah, I mean, that almost feels closer to a commentary on, on kind of corruption and and misuse of the structure than than the inquest no that's true oh another place where they make a very blatant commentary about religion is the bessie and margaret relationship where bessie's very religious margaret comes into the house and of course supports that view and then Uh nicholas you know is very much against that but then kind of lets up on that once his girl passes away and almost tries to find comfort in religion again. I don't actually remember that dynamic very well. 
It was it was more presented in the book. Yeah, it's more in the book and in the seventy four version. Um, and again, I think for a modern show where people are not that religious, anyways, you don't really need it. You don't need to make time for it. Um, because they they like talk about religion a lot. Because that's kind of her only comfort when she's. Because she knows she's about to die. Uh-huh. And they also made that character a lot older and I think wiser and more interesting in the show. Where she's more of an equal to Margaret. You know, and they have the fun banter about things that are going on in their lives. So. Yeah. Yeah, more of an equal, less of kind of a pet project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a good way to put it. If I'm remembering correctly, the the book had some some interesting things to say about people's relationship to death and and religion kind of through Mr. Higgins because I mean the death of, death of his daughter is what draws him back into mm-hmm. the fold as much as as much as he is drawn back. And yeah, I mean death changes all of us. Changes the entire community, everyone who's kind of connected to, to that person. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the stone throwing scene at all? Do you have anything to say about that? Um, you mean how it was presented thematically in the show, or I? Yeah, I think I, I think I'm just comparing it to the Patrick Stewart version, and because we have so much better equipment and technology available, that is a very quiet shot scene in the 70s uh-huh. and nowadays you can do all the fast movements and the quick cuts and margaret is falling and there's fake blood and stuff and <laughs> i i like it because it adds a little bit of movement and action to a show that's you, you know it's not an action show but yeah. it's kind of nice to kind of get your excitement going and the soldiers are coming and everyone's running around and you know it's there's a lot happening. People are running through alleyways and it kind of, I think makes it more clear to us as a modern audience is the stakes involved and you know, what is going to happen to the Irish workers, what is going to happen to the people who just lost all their jobs. It's yeah. I mean, as you say, for us as a modern audience, like we don't, we don't understand the significance of Irish strike breakers right? Like we don't understand um, really the social dynamics that are being presented here without that extra layer of, of, um, I guess I could compare to marginalized groups or, um, other immigrant communities who, um, come into the States or other, you know, other countries and do a lot of the work, but again, that is work that we are not seeking. That is not work that we want to be doing. Yeah. Whereas here, it's more of a, it's more of a, oh snap, no, that is literally my job, and I need it, and well, there's no other work available. Yeah, and it's in, you know, if you think about it, that a strike breaker is a tool that was and is used specifically for that purpose, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the people that are being specifically used to get these people to go back to work, right? And it's, um, but on the other hand, I mean, they're pitting one marginalized community against another um, Mm -hmm. to see which one will break first, basically. I mean, I agree, like the the added excitement and the added kind of motion and movement 
really gets allows us as an audience who um, to whom that is not the normal to really kind of live into that that social dynamic a little bit more i really wish that the portrayer of belcher was less pathetic and more desperate does that make sense no that's true i think there's a lot more to that character in the other show and in the book that they where they kind of just turn him into a weird criminal yeah and it's yeah i mean the the fact that he picked up a stone and threw it in the show was like the only time that we saw Belcher really act in a significant way in his life or in the world. Um, and it was, I mean, it was an act of violence that was completely kind of outside of the character that was developed in the show for us. Um and yeah, I, I think there again, there was a lost opportunity to really kind of live into that character a little bit more and to allow us to actually get to know them psychologically past like he's he's a he's a pathetic coward. I don't know. Because uh, the next the next action he takes the way he has any agency is taking his own life. I agree. Yeah, they, there's a lot more to that character that they they went with one way in the show and then stuck with it. Yeah, that. That scene in the Patrick Stewart version is so funny to watch because after she's passed out, he carries her into the house. <laughs> Sorry, and her head is just dangling down. It's it's like the worst possible way to treat like a, a head trauma victim. And then he pauses halfway and he's like, oh, Margaret, no one ever know what you'll mean to me. And he like walks up the stairs and her head is like bobbing around. And I'm like, OK, I think she's dead. I think you just killed her. <laughs> the only other quote I have written down, we kind of already touched on it, but it's when... Uh, Mrs. Thornton is kind of, she's just holding her son and she says, um, I don't mind about the house. I care about you. And we're back to where we started, but we will always have each other. Uh-huh. And as cold as these Northern people are, I often feel there's more, there's more warmth between those two people than even Margaret and her family, maybe with the exception of the brother, because the brother's very outgoing and touchy-feely, but... Yeah, well, and I I wonder if that warmth is more genuine, or rather more genuine feeling between those of the North because of the contrast between the person that they kind of display to the world and then the feelings they actually have for the people around them but but i agree like there there is a a deep sort of like i'll follow you to the end of the earth regardless of what happens you still have me type of mentality that's ingrained in the characters we see from the north that i don't think is in ingrained quite so much for those from the south because it appears more as frivolity I think, unless as, uh, like what you said, genuine, genuine emotion. Yeah. Which, kind of comparing that to the relationship that, or feelings that Dixon has for her mistress, there's also that part of Mrs. Thornton that's just almost over-worshipping her son, where she's like, oh, of course you've heard of my amazing son. And Margaret's like, yeah, no, nobody's talking about your weird son like down in London. 
girl. Uh, that's interesting, though, that you, that you bring up her her posturing around um, her son. It's a lot. Well, she's like, why why would you dress for tea with some old person? Like, they're not even good enough for you. Like, get back in your pajamas, kid. Like. <laughs> But I kind of going back to this depth of relationship, I wonder how much that has to do with the social structures or the, the social differences between North and South. And here I'm actually kind of thinking about the relationship between um, community and, and a workforce. Like we were saying before, the, the farmers would work alongside their workers in the south mostly because like if everyone didn't work then no one ate so it was more of a life and death you know we all have to band together or else we will all fail wherein in the north the strike happens and thornton brings in people from elsewhere it's like i can get people anywhere yeah and also i think also the parish where where margaret is expected to visit everybody in the parish yeah. and she she knows everybody in that village and city life is just not it's just not like that but then again we see in in close personal relationships that di- that dynamic is flipped you know um yeah like margaret's mother mm-hmm. and father like her mother if if she could have, she probably would have divorced the guy and left. Like she was so pissed that he yeah. up and uprooted them, right? And then we see the Thorntons, where um, mother and son are basically willing to go back into poverty together and stand by each other's decisions. I don't know. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. And also comparing that to the uh, wedding with her cousin, where her cousin, especially in the book, is presented of there's really not much to her, and this guy just falls in love with her, and yeah, they're happy, but th- there's really nothing beneath the surface yeah. for these two people and and their relationship, and yeah, and she has a kid now, so she has something to do at least, um, but that's basically it. Huh. And then also something that they just go into visually um, without any dialogue that the book discusses is also that difference of somebody who comes from an open, you know, space, comes from the country, even though Margaret hasn't really lived there that much because she lived in London. What is it like to come to an industrial town where people are actually working and there's factories and in the books they discuss parliament just coming up with laws and regulations so that they would have to burn their own smoke or burn their own coal so that people aren't constantly breathing this stuff in yeah you know and also the also the fluff that they're constantly eating unless there's like a mill and you know windmill installed to make it fly away it's 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 just interesting that even if you're not working in a mill you'll still be affected by it like they have to talk about how they have to wash their curtains all the time now because it's just stuff in the air all the time i mean that's yeah it's a it's almost a geological feature now yeah um i really don't have anything else i went we went through everything went through all our went through all my notes you got anything else Um, that i don't think so to be honest this was a good one i'm so glad we did this (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, yeah, I mean, it was about time. We've already kind of had discussions similar to this before, so I'm glad we glad we sat down and did it again. This is such a good period drama, and I wish that it had prompted publishers to come out with more book versions, but for some, you cannot find a hardcover version of this book or one with illustrations or one that isn't right. I don't understand. Yeah. Come on, people, anybody listening to this, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is one of those that I'm like, wait, how have I never heard of this book before? Right. And like the cover of the, of the paperback that I had originally you know, Mr. Thornton's like Fabio on the cover, and and <laughs> and Margaret is some wilted like female figure. And I'm like, what is going on here? This is not a romance novel. Like, stop. Oh God. Yeah, he had like long flowing blonde hair and this like tunic on. Oh, <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. Um. <laughs> Um, and then also something that I cannot personally verify that I um, read doing some research about this book. Um, if you compare a book that was written about similar topics, about workers' rights, um, you take Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Um, and the piece I read about it is that North and South feels a lot more genuine, whereas Hard Times feels more like a caricature of what's really going on. And it might have also helped that, you know, Gaskell was living in Manchester at the time and witnessing all the stuff around her. And she didn't, you know, she wasn't a fan. I think they just moved there because her husband lived there, worked there or something. Um, Yeah. And then all, just all the stuff that goes on during her lifetime. I mean, her, I think she has a child that passed away. Her best friend, Charlotte, Bronte passes away around this time, I believe. So, yeah, she's a she's an interesting human being for sure. That definitely tracks, and yeah, I feel as well that this piece is is more of a kind of honest representation rather than a caricature. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks again for being on, Morgan. Of course, my pleasure, Toby. Perfect. Um, you can find Modern Life. You can email us at gmail.com. You can find Modern Life Pod at Instagram. We have a website you can access through that link. And any podcatcher that you are using, just find us on there and look for the blue and white logo. Thank you so much for listening.